welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Elton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode. This is episode 202. 202, I'm your host, Josh Shelton, friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, we're live today. Uh, Looking at looking at some news and uh, enjoying the, the Texas weather. Getting ready for a fishing trip coming up pretty soon. Uh, excited about that. How are things going on your end today, Bo? How did you get lumped in this fishing trip, deal? Just to be quite honest with you, I was thinking about it the other day. Like I won a fishing trip off a bet from my expertise in the oil and gas markets, and somehow somehow you got you got lumped in on this thing. Uh, you're welcome for that, by the way. You're welcome hey. for that. And uh, but hey, speaking of fishing trip, I'm going fishing this Saturday. Uh, over to Lake Whitney, gonna go catch some striped bass. So those will, that should be fun. I don't know. Have you caught any since you've been over here? Have you gone done any striper fishing? Mm-mm, I haven't. I haven't. I've done it before, but I haven't right, done it right, here. Right. And, and, yeah, I know you've done it back. Uh, about enough. You've gone since you've been over here. Um, yeah, That's it should fun. be. It should be a good time. So a uh, little lip ripping happening this weekend. Um, and hey, I tell you what, I have. Uh, I don't know if this is a. Uh, how far out this goes outside of our area, but the, but the pollen, man, <laughs> like it feels like about every 30 minutes, like right at the back of my tongue or my tongue, leaves my throat, there is some kind of something that's like pricking me. Uh, so I'm ready for allergy season to go on about its business. How about you, man? This has been the worst season of allergies I've, I think I've ever seen. Like I wake up in the morning, just feel a little dizzy, man. It's been, been crazy. Which I've been talking to a lot of people, and everybody seems to agree that this is the worst they've ever seen it. I don't know if it's oh really COVID just made us all sissies, or if uh, or if it really is as bad as it well as bad as it's ever been. Flu, so we're probably not prepared, you know. So <laughs> yeah, if we would have had the flu, then we would probably feel a little better about it. Well, uh, Ryan, there's been some interesting stories that come out. Um, talk about natural gas has has been you know cir- circulating around. There's an article that actually just came out here recently that uh, Chevron and Saudi Aramco CEOs are bullish on natural gas in a low carbon future. So we'll have kind of a sister story to this where Exxon is outlining a plan to prepare for a low carbon future. But it seems that um, that these these big companies are um, very bullish on on natural gas. And that I think is at least a good sign to a degree for some of these companies that are investing in LNG and uh, the the market for these export terminals. Uh, so it seems that there's some good opportunities and optimism uh, around the natural gas market. Yeah. And I think our guest is here. Let's see here. I know he can hear us, I believe. If he's ready to hop on, we'll bring him on. There we go. He's a little bit early. That works out perfect. There we go. Uh, here you go. Uh, Shad Frazier, how's it going today, sir? It's going great, guys. Good to see you. And hey, good morning, Shad. the VP of production and operations at Endeavor Energy, correct? That is correct. All right. Good deal. Well, it's good to have you on. We're just talking about natural gas. I think you heard right there. So give us your take on the natural gas market. So in our world, natural gas is really one of those things we're looking at in the Midland Basin as being the long-term future of what we're dealing with. You know, big part of all these oil wells is how much gas they're moving. So it's a byproduct. You know, everyone was complaining about flaring a couple of years ago. We've kind of gotten that under control and all that gas is moving out. So really what we see natural gas as is as the energy source of the future to be able to provide energy for places 
like Africa, like Asia, that can use propane, use LNG, and be able to provide power for people's homes and cooking. You know, it's it's something that, you know, in the next 10 years will be something that there's 3 billion people in the world that don't use biomass right now that could use natural gas or LNG and be able to use that to power and cook in their homes and stop a lot of the you know, deaths that are happening because of people are using biomass to inside of their homes and having to live with cooking fires. I know in 2019, late 2019, I was looking at um, trying to get some folks to get natural gas uh, into Mexico and then ship it to China. It's kind of a long story. But one of the things I come across was is that that kind of midstream operators weren't inclined to take it off because of prices. And then these producers were kind of having a hard time, especially the smaller producers were having a hard time um, figuring out what to do with it because they necessarily didn't have enough to flare, but then they couldn't put it in the pipeline. Uh, are we still kind of in that state? So the long-term outlook's good, but where are we at right now? Because last year the talk was, or I say not last year, <laughs> before last year the talk was flaring, flare mitigation. Um, obviously production's dropped a lot. Um, as far as pipeline capacity goes, is it something that the companies are looking to put in the pipelines today or are they you know, um, still having problems making profit on that? I think they're finding ways to do it today because we've gotten past that peak output capacity of the Permian Basin. You know, a lot of pipelines were put in place in the last two years. They provided space, provided room. Now they're running into the issues where those pipelines are at running at 50% of capacity and the efficiencies aren't there. So they want to find more ways to move that gas or move other products down those lines and get them out. You know, in the past, we we're worried about taking all the uh, liquids and getting them to the ship channel and not having a place to move it. Well, now they found a way to get that out of there. So now it's just really how do we drill effectively to be able to produce that gas and not waste the energy? You know, I think there was a good stat the other day that this, uh, the state of California burned almost 600 BCF of gas last year to provide electricity for their state. And Iraq flared 600 BCF of gas. You know, how do we stop that from happening? Because if we can stop those type of issues from going on and provide clean energy under the rules and regulations of the United States, we can provide a better and cleaner energy source than anyone else in the world. Yeah, so uh, we talked a little bit about the LNG um, and places like China, India, and there were some huge projects that were being um, planned, you know, in the Gulf. And, uh, and it, it looks like some of those were put on hold last year but there's talk of some of those actually reviving. Um, do, do you think uh, the LNG, the, the projects that were on the books, I say 2019, are they something that uh, gives optimism to companies like Endeavor and the Permian? Is it something that uh, y'all can take advantage of? Or, I mean, how, how are y'all seeing that right now? I really feel like it's something that we will take advantage of. You know, we're a growing operator that's private, so we don't have to deal with the ESG market as much as the public entities have to deal with. So we're putting capital to work every day that we have on the books. We can't at, you know, provide as much activity as capital as we have because we've kind of hit the limitations of our staff and our capabilities. It's we're growing, but we've got to work into that growing pace with several different operators out here. If you look at the rig counts, Mewburn, another privately held company, they've got a lot of rigs running. You know, CrownQuest is out here, got a lot of rigs running. We're all trying to push as much as we can because we see this year and next year prices moving in the positive direction. So we want to be ahead of the game and have those wells online. You know, it's a six month lead on a lot of these projects. So, you know, we approved uh, a number. I don't really want to say on the radio or on the podcast of wells to be approved. that will be drilled in the next six months. And it's just it's amazing how much we can get approved right now. But we're just running into limitations of how fast can we actually get all the work done. So how are you guys balancing out looking at what we've seen with the Biden administration and the, the BLM? 
Uh, we talk about planning. Obviously, I think they've extended the the, the their their um, banning of per- new permits until June. Um, obviously, co- you know, companies like yourself want to plan out six months to a year. Uh, how do you balance that out with a new administration? Obviously, the Biden administration will be here for another three and a half years. Um, are you concerned about what we're seeing in New Mexico? Or you, maybe you guys don't have any position in New Mexico. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you don't want to discuss that. But yeah. just curious how you guys think about that. And what, if any, impact will that have on Texas? Do you think that um, some of these federal mandates um, are, will, will stay in New Mexico because we have not a lot of BLM land in Texas? I think what you're going to see is the the rules that are kind of being put in place in Colorado are the rules that are the federal government's trying to look at right now and trying to see if they can apply. So if they can use those as kind of guidelines, then what we're looking at is how do we make sure that we stay compliant with Colorado rules in our activities today? So all of our facilities that we look at and build, we try to make sure that we're not going to be exceeding those type of regulations now, knowing what the regs are now and knowing what the regs could be in the future. And that way we try to make sure that what we build is functional one way or the other. But, you know, administrations always change. You know, that's the one great thing about our government is nothing ever stays forever. You know, Obama was in place for eight years and a lot of things changed, but not all of them were bad. And, you know, when I kind of set off to talk to you guys, it's about how do we become a better, more cleaner oil producing state as a country? Because the new weapon in the world is not weapons of mass destructions. It's not bullets. It's not missiles. It's energy. So one of the things that we've talked about on this podcast from, I don't know, maybe day one, but early on is operators, whether you're big or small, taking responsibility um, when their mistakes are made. And that's the one thing that the industry uh, is that is our industry, but big industries in general have a hard time. They want to shift the blame here, shift the blame there. Um, and, and one of the things that we've, we've often talked about is this kind of idea of, you know, oil and gas companies are dealing with, with the regulators, but the people who are most impacted are the landowners. So how are you talking about responsible, um, take, adapting the Colorado rules? How have you guys tried to bring in all the stakeholders and make sure that you're communicating clearly, clearly with them and then, taking care of them when there is a problem or, or a mistake or, you know, natural things that happen and, and working with them to make sure that it's clear and transparent because it feels like when you talk about the BPs or the Chevrons, or the Exxon, they have so many PR people that that's what, every, that's what the world sees, but there's plenty of companies like yourself who are out there every day producing oil, producing gas. And um, it, it's the little guys who have to really build the reputation up. It feels like. It really is. And it's a matter of making sure that we're making smart decisions. And like you said, bringing everybody to the table to begin with. And it's not easy because we have landowners that are mineral owners, but aren't surface owners. And so how do you get both of those players at the table at the same time and making sure that we're making decisions correct? You know, one of the big issues we still deal with out here in the Permian is water. And we have landowners that are forcing us, they want us to buy water from them and then inject water back on their property. So they get water rights on both ends on royalties. Well, we look at it and we want to use recycle because recycling water is something we can do easily out here. And water is a finite resource in the Permian. You know, we've been going for a long stretch. We're way underneath what our weather, you know, rain limits have supposed to been. So it's been very, very dry out here. So we want to use recycled water as much as we can and not use aquifer water. But, you know, that's when we're trying to really work with landowners to help them understand we're not trying to keep you from making money. What we're trying to do is make sure that you have water after we're here and gone and that there will still be water in this ground for you to use. Yeah. And so let's talk about the water thing. I, um, you had the, the, I guess it's 2017, 2018 sand was kind of the big thing and then water kind of overtook it. And there was a lot of, and I'm not a water guy, so I'm asking from ignorance here. There was a lot of talk about what water you can use. Can you not use what water can you clean? Can you purify? Maybe walk us through just at a high level, how the water industry has changed. Have we made 
uh, a lot of a lot of progress? Are we still in the infancy stages? Is it something that's going to be a an issue, or do you think that we've kind of circumvented that because a lot of those discussions back in 2019 were you know weekly topics of the podcast, and we don't hear about them as much. So, where is the water recycling industry at? Well, I think every operator out here in the Permian right now has a water team, and that water team really focuses in on how do we make sure we're making the best use of the water available. So, you know, we as a company actually recycle almost, we're better part of almost a quarter to a half of our produced water every day is recycled. And that's been, you know, when you run frat crews, we're running 13, 14, we've been as high as 21 stages a day. You're using 200,000 barrels of water a day for frat jobs. You know, that is a huge amount of water and you don't want to, you know, you start trying to think about it. We start talking about it in uh, aircraft carrier sizes of how much water that we've moved in a day in sand and you know, it's, you really have to think about it as it's a, you know, just like oil and gas, it's a finite resource and you have to be a good steward of that resource. So water recycling has become better. We're finding better ways of using, you know, we have a Santa Rosa water that's out here that's very brackish. So a lot of salts in it. So we're finding ways that we can mix it with our produced water that's not as salty and be able to make it where we can frack with it. But, you know, the glorious thing is we're slip water fracking. So as long as you can mix it and make it work with friction reducers and carry the sand, it's not like the old days where we're trying to make cross-link gels where you couldn't use any of that water. You know, slick water uses just the same, you know, as fresh water. It's just a matter you have to make sure it's clean when it goes down hole so it doesn't cause bacteria problems. And so, you know, a lot of it goes into the treating, chlorine dioxide, other ways that we treat it to kill the bacteria so we don't end up with problems down the road. Go ahead, Josh. Well, I was going to say there was uh, lots of talk with saltwater disposals, and that was a, a huge market as well. A lot of people were investing in that. But there is talk of uh, different seismic activity that was happening in and around where they had lots of these saltwater disposals. Are we seeing people trying to get away from that, or do you think that's still a viable um, investment in, in some of these areas, especially like Eddie Lee County where they were they were stacking them in pretty heavy? Um yeah, now that's that's a very big problem right now, and even the Railroad Commission is starting to come out. You know, they've got new rules that if there's a seismic event of a certain gradient, that there's a nine-kilometer distance radius around that event that they're going to withhold or restrict injection in disposal wells around it. And, you know, the first rules that came out said they were going to ban injection. Well, that doesn't work real well. That would shut down the whole business. So they had to figure out, you know, maybe we, we can restrict it. Um, you know, and it's interesting because everyone goes out and you can look at uh, – the basic USGS data that shows earthquakes, and that is an unrefined data set that basically gives you a quick snap of where that earthquake happened. Well, then if you go to the University of Texas, they're taking that same earthquake data and pushing it into what they're calling Scissor, and Scissor then gives you a much better uh, idea of where those earthquakes are happening. And if you do that, you can actually see that all the earthquakes that are happening in the Midland Basin are happening along direct lines of about two to three injectors. So you can see where which injectors or which areas have direct influence. And so it's one of those things that as operators, we're all trying to do our best to make sure we're not going to over-influence those key areas and keep it from happening. One of the key areas just north of Midland. You know, it's one of those things is I, I worked for Sandridge Energy, worked through all of the issues that we had with all the earthquakes in Oklahoma. You know, it's one of those things when you have an earthquake that's out in farmland, no one really cares. When you have earthquakes that are affecting people's homes and buildings, everyone starts to pay attention. And, you know, we don't want to get to that point. We're trying to be good stewards and making sure that we stay away from where these danger zones or, you know, stress zones are and make sure that we keep the earthquakes in mind when we put together future plans. Okay. You, you mentioned, um, so let's talk about kind of responsibility and focus on that for a few minutes here. 
Um, you, you start off, I think, by throwing out this number of three billion people. Um, and, and you know, there's a there's a great book for anyone listening who wants to look at um, kind of uh, global poverty and things things like that called the Bottom Billion, and uh, it's, it's a great read. Anyways, um, one of the things that I've said for some time is um, since my first show, the Global Energy Leaders Podcast, was uh, um, energy agnostic, right? So if you're in the the remote villages of Zambia. You know, we don't need to throw up a nuclear power plant for that, right? <laughs> the energy mm-hmm. solution there is far different new, than New York City. Um, that being said, oil and gas is vital on some uh, at some level, whether it's you know the machinery and the the, the diesel to get the the solar panel to the village in in uh, in Zambia, or the concrete to build the nuclear power plant. How do we convey? the importance of our message of what we do in the oil and gas industry to those who don't quite understand the necessity that we, that we, that we bring without feeling like we're always trying to shove oil and gas down their throat. I think that's the hardest thing is that both sides are treating it as a religion, which means that it's, if there's no right or wrong answer, I believe in it. And it's a belief. I don't have to have facts or figures. I just have to believe in it. And I think that's where energy agnostic has to come in. There's, it doesn't matter which energy source we use. We just need to get energy to these people. You know, if you think about the fact that there's more people in the world that than the United States that have no ability to turn on a light bulb, and those people are living every day gathering food and gathering wood just to make a meal. You know, there's a great case study when you look at the Dominican Republic in Haiti, and one country put energy agnostic, they went out, they put out hydroelectric, and that country now has 10 times the GDP of the other. So the Dominican Republic put in hydroelectric, put in infrastructure, they're making electricity for their people, and now their GDP is 10 times what Haiti is, who's still living on the fact that they have diesel generators as their only source of electricity in most parts of that island. So you have one country that has a mean average income of $1,700 a year, and another country that has it as $17,000 a year. So when we talk about trying to raise up society, it's about how do we provide energy so that everyone has that same capability? Because when you provide energy, what you're doing is providing luxury. And luxury is different for everybody. But luxury is what allows us to think. And all of a sudden, when you have time to think, you have time to make yourself better. If all you're having to do is collect water and collect fuel, there's no time to do that. Yeah, I think that kind of gets lost on people. We talk about going on vacation, you know, going to see outdoors. And I don't remember who it was. They're talking about, um, I don't know, you know, 200 years ago, whatever it was, 300 years ago, that people wouldn't travel to go outdoors because <laughs> – they were outdoors all the time, you know, and now we live in such luxury in the U.S. You're like, oh, I want to go see this cool thing outdoors or go camping or whatever. And so it's really flipped for us in the U.S., but that is uh, not the cases in large portions of Africa, South America, even China, India, places like that where they don't have access to, to what we have. And oil and gas is, is vital, um, and yet we want to be energy agnostic because the solution on a community basis is different. And it feels like... um you know, in the U.S., it's it, 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 what I've said is what I've been to to Africa um, is that you know the U.S. and in Europe we export our ideas out to the world, right? So we say, hey, this is what we think, and then they kind of take those ideas and almost have to adopt them by the way the world banking system works. Um, and that, that's a little concerning because we want to be energy agnostic. We also want to say, okay, hey, these are the important energy things. We don't, for instance, we wouldn't want to export out bad energy ideas or bad energy policy. So how do we lead? Uh, in the U.S. by you know adopting good policy that won't be cumbersome to these emerging markets because they will go from the remote village with the solar panel to a thriving village that needs more energy capacity. So how do we make sure that we're exporting out um, good energy policy as well? 
I think that's where we have to help the administration understand there are certain things inside of their protocols and their movement that they're trying to push forward that makes sense, but we can't do it to the detriment of society as a whole. When you start making the cost of energy so high that at the, the lowest level, you know, the issues that are people that in the United States where people that are in the poverty level, when their energy bills are going up 20 and 30%, it's eating up not 20%, but it's eating up 40% of their income. When you have to drive an hour a day to get to your job and your fuel costs have gone up twice to three times, you know, you can't do those type of things. And so we got to take those lessons that we're applying today and make sure that where we're trying to put energy elsewhere in the world, that they're able to use it effectively so that they don't have to go through the hardness and the hard lessons. They don't have to go through the black loan issues that London went through in the 1800s. They don't have to go when they went through industrialization. How do we help them make sure that the decisions they're putting in place are the right decisions so that they don't have to learn the hard lessons we learned? And oil and gas provides you a great resource because it's a stable, very localized, small source that you can go. You know, the next thing I always talk to people about is nuclear. You know, we always give nuclear a bad name, but really when you look at energy density, nuclear is a great source to be able to provide power in a small footprint and provide it for large scale. So how do we make sure that people around the world, because the United States, you can't build a nuclear reactor because there's just too many people that are against it. But France uses it. Other places around the world use it. How do we help countries understand that if you can provide that power, you can lift up your entire country and get it out of poverty and get to the point that it's a world player and not just a stepping stone for everyone to step over? Yeah, that's uh, I mean, nuclear, I think, is huge. I mean, uh, there was a book I read that talked about nuclear and, and hydro. Um, and it's one of the things that a lot of people overlook because it's relatively clean energy, actually. Um, and for some reason, um, it's not seen with the same sort of optimism or um, people aren't for it as much as they are, say, wind, solar um, and other forms of energy. Why do you think uh, why do you think the U.S. is so against nuclear? Do you think it's uh, partisanship where there are people that are invested in certain companies that are dictating that? Or do you think it's just a perception of these companies blowing up or having meltdowns and all of that? I think it is fear. But you look at the you know, Fukushima is the one that everyone wants to talk about right now. And the problem they've looked at post Fukushima was that the radiation didn't kill people moving everyone away from Fukushima killed everybody, you know, the risk and the worry there. So it's about how do we make sure that the right information, you know, one of the things I've been trying to do on LinkedIn is I have a, a post series that I've been keeping where all I do is talk about here's facts. And it's tough because in LinkedIn, you're doing it in about, you know, two paragraphs and just put facts. So, cause the issue out there is that it's not, it goes back to that statement before People use religion. In religion, you don't have to have facts. You just have to have belief. And what we have to do is make sure that people see the facts. You know, the, the facts of Chernobyl. Chernobyl was bad, but a lot of those people didn't die because of radiation. That is, they died because of cleaning up the radiation and people putting them in the wrong place at the wrong time afterwards to clean up the mess. It wasn't the explosion. It was the cleanup afterwards. You know, so it's nuclear gets a bad rap because it is dangerous. But if you actually look at their deaths in the United States to oil field accidents and the deaths to, you know, scary part is if we actually go look at the uh, high transmission power line deaths that we have in the United States, there's more deaths in transforming electricity and moving electricity across the United States than there has been on two nuclear. Yeah. And, and that, that kind of brings us to, um, 
you know, talk about safety just in general. It's one of the things that I think that kind of you know a lot of our listeners um, will know this, but maybe not all of them, is that it's it's rare that um, you know. So if if Endeavor has you know X safety standards, whatever this might be, um, you're going to require some, if not all, of those for your vendors, depending on what what the vendor's doing and where they're at and if they're coming on site or not. And so the the safety protocols get passed down the value chain. And so you might have a trucking company who's working for you know a logger working for Walmart and then they're working for Endeavor, but the Endeavor might have the most uh, rigorous safety standards for them because of how our industry is. And that kind of gets lost in the phrase of it feels like. It really does. You know, and the, there's the Permian strategic partnership, which is the, basically the group of 20 of the largest oil and gas operators in the Permian. And we all have gotten together to talk about road and safety and how do we transmit those safety protocols from us to all of our vendors so that all of our vendors, because what we found was that, you know, when the rush was going, a lot of the vendors weren't abiding by the safety and the rules. And, you know, we had to put a stop and put our foot down and basically say, if you weren't going to abide by our rules, you weren't going to work on any of these locations. And we're going to all be uniform and say, here are our safety practices. We're not in collusion. All we're trying to do is make sure that everyone is safe every day because the highways of death out here between Pecos and Carlsbad, you know, you didn't want to be out there because of all the bad road traffic and everything. So, you know, we had to put our foot down and say, here are how we're going to improve things. And we have to take responsibility for that and make sure all the people that work for us are doing what we think is safe. Josh, one more from you and then we'll, uh, I'll wrap yeah. Up. Uh, so I, I don't want to get too far off topic. So, uh, there was a question I had, you mentioned something a little earlier, uh, and I don't know if there's something that you really want to talk about or not. So it's, let me know if it's not, but, uh, the question about, uh, ESG. So we've been had conversations with uh, some smaller uh, companies that are in the Permian. And also we talked to some people that are associated with bigger companies. And it seems that usually the bigger companies are more for uh, these uh, intense ESG guidelines. Um, and so it's, it's kind of putting some pressure on some of these smaller companies. Um, how does that affect a company like you know, Endeavor? Um, and from your perspective, are y'all ahead of the curve on the ESG? Do you see that? Uh, do you see the moves being made by ESG as um, attempts for these bigger companies to, you know, even get more market share? Or I mean, what what is your view on that? How do you see ESG affecting you and and the Permian um, at this particular juncture? You know, in my mind, ESG is just a new set of rules to live by. And what we've seen is that the majors are kind of helped setting the guidelines of how we're going to live by those rules. And as the smaller independents, we're going to have to figure out how do we want to live inside of that world. Um, the best thing about us is being private. We don't have a lot of banks that we have to report to. We don't have a lot of people that are having to adjust. But you know, even our reserve-based lending is changing because of ESG rules. There's banks that are no longer going to be involved in oil and gas. So they're pulling out of you know, those banking consortiums that help oil and gas companies. So what we see it as is as a capital requirements of the future come in, ESG is going to be one of those requirements to prove that you're a worthy operator. So it's not going to be a statement of whether you're right or whether you're wrong. It's whether you're worthy to be invested in. Are you doing what's right? You know, it's, you know, as an old boy scout, it's that leave no trace type of motto. You know, how are we going to do what's right for the environment so that when we do our job, that when it's done, we haven't harmed the environment, we haven't hurt the environment. And what we've done has been better for the, the society as a whole than what damage we have could have caused. So you know, it's going to be a problem, but it's one of those things, no problem that the oil and gas industry has faced, we couldn't solve. It just takes time and energy. Yeah, it, it's funny. I heard uh, Kevin O'Leary 
uh, in a recent interview talking about how he got rid of uh, Summerjay. And and one of the reasons was is that you know these investors, these groups would come to him and say, well, wh- why are you investing in them? It, it had nothing to do with their profits or anything. It was just like what you know, the perception. And so he said he just cut it out. He goes, I cut it out. And I think he's completely out, out of energy, at least oil and gas right now. He said because he just didn't want the questions. He didn't want to deal with the hassle. And I think that's going to be an inter- interesting dynamic to watch. Is you know as the money leaves from some perspective, where is the new money and you know how does that that sort itself of out? And we're kind of in the in the early phases of this. But let me um. Let's wrap up here with this for folks who aren't familiar with Endeavor, maybe a high level of where you want to leave them at, um, you know, and um, any, any other, anything else that you want to touch on before we get you out of here today. Sure. So Endeavor Energy is a Midland-based focus company that has basically been around for the better part of over 25 plus years in Midland Basin. Uh, we've been lucky enough to put together an acreage position that it can be rivaled to very few out in the basin. We have plenty of rigs running for us now. We've grown the production from 2016 of 20,000 barrels a day. Today, we're over 130,000 barrels a day. Got 12 rigs running in the air, three frat crews. It's, you know, the future for our endeavor is bright. We have uh, inventory of locations left to go. We're looking for bright and smart people that want to come join us. I feel kind of bad because every job posting we put out, we get 80 to 100 resumes for. So, you know, we're looking for the best and the brightest to come join us and help us make things better in the Midland Basin and uh, really look forward to seeing what the future holds for everybody. You, you notice, Josh, he didn't offer us jobs. He said the best and the brightest. He, he, didn't, he didn't say, hey, well, I got you two guys here. We're hiring. Oh, by the way, he, that wasn't it. He said, you guys are cute. The best well, and the brightest. Please come work for us. So I, well, I, I, you're I, moving, Ryan. So, I, you know, we, you got to move to Midland. And I'm not sure that's in your, you know, where you're moving to. So, well, we're, uh, we're. <laughs> yeah, Midland, it's dry out there. It's dry. I get nosebleeds really bad as it is. I couldn't imagine living out in Midland. Like, oh, it's a. Ugh. Uh, I don't know how you do it. It's I, I, I'm, I'm fragile. I'm fragile. So oh, I need no. a little more humidity in my ear. So yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys today. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we'll leave the website in the show, and you heard it, guys. He is they're hiring. So there you go. So if you're looking for a job, um, be sure to check out Endeavor, and we'll get you on again in the future, hopefully. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Chad. All right, Mr. Shelton. What else we got? All right. Well, let's, uh, we got a couple of things I wanted to touch on. Uh, we talked about the natural gas already. Uh, there was a couple of things for the Texas Roundup. Reliance and BP start production at Delaware Deepwater Gas Field Offshore India. Uh, that's been one of the questions I've had, Ryan, is going to be offshore drilling. Some of these companies aren't going to be as impacted as some of these land companies, or it seems to me at least that that's my perception. And I'm wondering how much uh, the production from offshore will affect oil price, oil supply uh, for you know these these land-based companies. Uh, so that's one thing I got there. And then second one, Texoga releases a study of winter storms impact. So we've talked a lot about this and I don't want to go too much into detail. Just wanted to link in the show notes because it might be something if anybody's been following uh, the winter storm and wants to you know, get a better analysis of exactly what happened and the impact uh, pretty good article here to, to go and check out uh, oil price right now is at 61.81, So it dropped a little bit today, but not much uh, still hanging in over 60. So Ryan, things look, uh, look, look, like they're going okay right now. We're just, I guess, waiting for that next uh, Aramco meeting. Uh, well, to see. 
if you heard what he said, it sounds like they're pretty optimistic over yeah. in Denver about the prices. And so, yeah. um, you know, um, unfortunately, he wasn't optimistic about yours and mine uh, uh, job prospect there. So that was kind of disappointing. So, uh, yeah. well, I thought at least uh, we a, janitor, a janitor spot. I know well, we're the cream of the crap. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> we should at least have a little shot. Little shot, little shot. Okay. Well, that is it for episode 202. Thank you everyone for tuning in. And until next time, keep climbing. <laughs>